And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 6. Hear God's word. Jesus speaking. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the gospel that uh, we have heard now, and we ask you to imprint this on our heart and on our lives and on our minds so that we can go from this place marinating in these things and continue to apply them. And so today I pray that you would deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from all error, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Thank you once again for pioneering and help us, uh, helping us pull this new plan off. I really, really am thankful. This has been a year full of challenges, and it would not have been possible at any point without your resilience, without your can-do attitude, without your help. So I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Every one of you should be the ones getting the, the basket today, not, not me. I'm very, very thankful to all of you. You like the elbow room? Is that nice? You like that? Yeah, that's nice. Why are people more likely to be afraid of flying than driving. It doesn't make sense statistically. Automobile crashes are one of the leading causes of death in the United States. Behind heart disease and cancer, automobile accidents are third on the list. You have a one in 106 chance dying of, of, a, of a car accident in your lifetime. But that's not something that paralyzes any of us with fear. Not that I know of. We all drove here today. We all planned to get in our cars and drive home. Well, at least we did until I started naming statistics, right? But, we, <laughs> but we're all planning to drive home, and, and we're not afraid. We're not afraid of driving. And yet about 50% of Americans are moderately to severely afraid of flying. Flying terrifies a great number of people. But statistically speaking, driving is immensely more dangerous than flying. The number of deaths on commercial airlines for the past couple of decades is 0.2 deaths per 10 billion passenger miles. 0.2 deaths on commercial airlines per 10 billion passenger miles versus 150 deaths per 10 billion passenger miles for drivers and their occupants. 
However, if you're like me and you dislike flying as much as I do, those statistics mean nothing. When you see the ground dropping away from beneath you, when you feel the turbulence in the middle of the air, when you realize you're in a metal tube rocketing through the sky six miles above the surface of the earth, logic and reason go right out the window. When I'm gripping the armrest, praying that we land safely, I'm not thinking logically and I'm not thinking statistically, even though I'm taking the greater risk after I land and I get into the car. That's the greater risk. We like to think of ourselves as eminently logical. We make decisions on the basis of data and not feelings. We assume that other people are rational too, which is why we think we can change their minds. If only we can show them the right chart or the right statistical table, then we'll change their minds and show them why their fears are unfounded. The truth is we can all be supremely irrational when it comes to accurately gauging risk. And we tend to trade light risks for much heavier risks with all kinds of unintended consequences if the light risk is unfamiliar to us and the heavier risk has the appearance of safety. We make that exchange all the time. If I could take a stab at answering this question, why do people on average tend to be more afraid of, of flying than driving? I would wager that it has something to do with control. When you're behind the wheel of your own car, you have command over the vehicle and you're responsible if something goes wrong. When you get onto an airplane, you are handing over the control to somebody else and your control is suspended. That, that lack of control incites terror and panic. Though it really just brings to the front of your mind what should be there all the time. It exposes the reality that your control all the time is actually an illusion. We, we generally operate with this sense that we're the captains of our lives, that it's 100% the work of our hands, our intuition, our industry alone that feeds and clothes and protects us all of our days. But that mirage of control gets punctured from time to time. Things outside of our control come crashing in to rob us of control, and it plunges us into fear and anxiety and worry. And then we desperately work to reestablish command over the thing that has slipped from our grasp and we'll do anything, even useless things, even superstitious things to make us feel as if we're back into exerting some kind of control over our lives. And the irony is, is that when we are most fearful, that's when we're most controllable. When we're most fearful is when we're the most easily manipulated. The fearful are easily manipulated. Well, this Advent, we've been cleaning house of guilt and regret and bitterness so that we can go into the great feast of Christmas clean and whole and without our joy muted by sin. So today I want to sweep away one final joy killer, and that is fear. It is extremely difficult to rejoice if your heart is frantic with worry and anxiety. So far in the last few weeks, I've, I've thinly sliced some terms. I've said guilt is different from regret is different from bitterness. Today, I'm not going to do that. Today, I'm going to get a big pot and throw all kinds of terms into the same thing. Worry, anxiety, 
fear. I'm not going to separate those. I'm going to talk about them interchangeably because the Bible talks about worry and fear and anxiety, uh, being anxious. And it, and, it, and it mixes these terms and it doesn't lay out, uh, in, in my mind, in my understanding, do, it's, it's not clear what the, what the very specific differences are between them. So I'm going to use these words interchangeably and address this issue of worry and fear. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus has addressed his disciples and as he's outlined this new way of living, he addresses the issue of worry and fear. And he sounds very much like Solomon when he does this. In fact, he even references Solomon in the, in the middle of it. He, found, he sounds like the Proverbs, Jesus does. Jesus talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, just like Solomon talked about ants and lions and grass. In the Proverbs, Solomon teaches us two different ways of living, the way of the fool and the way of the wise man. Jesus now does the same thing. He puts two different ways in front of us, the way of the fearful who are wrapped up in the concerns of the world and the way of the faithful who seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The fearful of this world are constantly vexed because this world is their only world. This kingdom and these kingdoms are their only kingdoms. This life is the only life they get by their reckoning. They're terrified of death. Even the little whiff of death that sickness brings is intolerable. They believe that they're entirely on their own. There is no God to bless the righteous or punish the wicked. So it's all up to them. And they're consumed with preserving their lives at all costs. And they're very anxious when they lose control. And Jesus tells his disciples, you must be strikingly different from that world. Well, where do we start, Lord? Where, how do we start not being that way? Well, here's where you start. Jesus says, do not worry. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. Your heavenly father takes care of them. He'll take care of you. That sounds so simplistic to us. That sounds too easy. We feel lost if we don't have something to agonize over. But Jesus corrects us and he says this fuel, uh, this, this fear-fueled life, that's the old way. That's the old world. That's how the cities of men run. They run on anxiety. It's the fear of failure that keeps people up working all hours of the night to prove their worth. The fear of missing out and the fear of looking poor drives up credit card debt. The fear of age and the fear of sickness keeps people tinkering with their bodies, diets and food fads and regimens and surgeries. Self-preservation is the highest ideal. I mean, just stay safe, right? That's the most important thing. Preserve yourself and stay safe. Well, all these fears are based in the deep, gnawing realization that we all have an expiration date. Every one of our efforts have limits, and you and I cannot see the future. This is so frustrating because we desperately want control over everything. We want to guarantee our own security, and we cannot. If you know you can't control everything, and you still try to control everything, you will end up out of your mind with worry and fear. And that is the fruitless life of the fearful and the faithless. And that's, what the, that's the picture Jesus paints for us. The faithful, on the other hand, don't fear the future because they're resting in the knowledge that Jesus is ruling over the future. The Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father, and he's ruling over the cosmos today. And when you wake up tomorrow, 
he'll still be ruling over the cosmos. He'll still be ruling over everything. And in 10,000 years, do you know who's going to be in charge? The Lord Jesus is still going to be ruling over everything. Your future is ruled by Jesus. Therefore, nothing about your future should terrify you. He's already there. And what we eat and what we drink and what we wear tomorrow is already established under his sovereign care. So the kingdom of Jesus knows that. We delight in that. And so we're not ruled by fear. The world that is passing away is ruled and governed by anxiety. However, we are at rest and we have confidence because as Jesus said, our heavenly father feeds the birds who don't plant anything. Those birds didn't work for that food. They didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet they're fed. He closed the flowers of the field with glory, even though they'll be gone tomorrow. They'll be mown down tomorrow. And you are immeasurably more valuable than the birds or the flowers. And your father knows what you need to live. He knows what you require tomorrow more than you do. But that leaves me feeling like I'm not in control. So what? He is. And therefore, your anxiety adds nothing to your life. It is not productive. Jesus says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? You can't add anything to your life by worrying and anxiety. Worrying about things that may happen tomorrow, don't keep them from happening. It has no effect. Your worry has no effect. In verse 34, Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You have plenty on your plate today. Your heavenly Father knows what you need tomorrow. But worry says, that's not good enough. I want to be in control of tomorrow too, because I don't trust God to do a good enough job with my tomorrow. Of course, that's folly. That's the way of the faithless. And here Jesus says, the only way to get the things you need is not to bite and claw for them, but to seek God's kingdom, obey him, and all these things will be added to you. You may say, whenever the subject of fear comes up, uh, you may say, well, I'm not, I'm not fearful. I'm, I'm just concerned. I'm cautious. In fact, I don't like the assumption that I'm being sinfully fearful when I'm just careful. Well, let's consider that for a few minutes. When can fear be a good thing? Can it? Well, God gave us the capacity for fear, just like he gave us every emotion. He gave us these emotions for good purposes. So fear of falling causes me to reach out and grab the handrail when I'm going down the stairs. Fear of losing my home motivates me to pay my mortgage. These are rational fears that keep me from physical harm. If I'm at the zoo, I don't pet the polar bear because I know that that's not going to end well. This is not a petting zoo. It's every, pet, every zoo is a petting zoo if you try hard enough, but this not, it's not on the table. You can't pet the polar bear. That's unwise. Fear keeps us from these dangers. Fear can also keep us from spiritual danger. The fear of fatherly discipline, the fear of falling out of fellowship with God, the fear of being enslaved to dominating sin. All of these protect us as well. Proverbs 16.6 6 says, the fear of Yahweh, I'm sorry, by, by the fear of Yahweh, one departs from evil. Because we have a capacity for fear, we are able to escape injury and prevent disasters and abstain from evils that would destroy us. 
But we can mark the difference between those constructive fears and irrational sinful fears. The fears that dominate us and overpower us. The fears that, that plague our thoughts and grip our lives and take us captive. People create entire lifestyles based around fears and they become eccentric and unfruitful. These are fears that cause us to collapse into ourselves and remove productivity from our lives. Fears that constantly trigger that fight or flight response that we're, we're always then fighting or fleeing. So when is fear sinful and what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, let's think through this for just a few minutes together. Fear is sinful when it is born out of distrust for God. Jesus says your father in heaven knows what you need. There is nothing that you require to be pleasing to him that he is withheld from you. First Peter 1.3 says his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Your fears say the opposite. Our fears tell us that he's going to deprive us of something we need, that he's going to betray us, that he's going to get us way out on the ledge in some precarious position and leave us there, that he's, he's going to put us in a place where we have no hope and no way out. But your fears preach a false gospel. Your fears are really bad at theology. Your fears distrust God. Your fears preach that God cannot take care of you. In Psalm 31, David prays, into your hand, I commit my spirit. My times are in your hand. Because of who the triune God is, you can deposit your whole life into the palm of his hand. All your moments and all your days, all of your stuff, all of your people, all of your plans and hopes and designs for your future. Faith submits all of it. It pushes it all across the table and says, my life is yours. My family is yours. My time is yours. My career is yours. All of it is yours. And there in that is trust that God will take care of the future. And it erases fear and it erases distrust. Fear is sinful when it's born out of distrust in God. Faith puts everything in God's hand. Fear is sinful also when we attribute to the thing we fear more power than God. If the subject of your fear looms bigger in your mind than the sovereign and mighty God, then what you're saying is that this thing is actually more powerful than God. Anything you elevate over the triune God, that's your God. If there's anything that's mightier than he is, that thing is God and the triune God is nothing. That's rel relatively easy for Christians to correct that thinking. We say, no, 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 wait, that's wrong. This thing is not mightier or bigger than God. But that explains why the people who have no God live lives that are governed entirely by fear. Their cosmos is populated by, by boogeymen and evil forces and evil powers and foul humors and, and natural disasters that are all more powerful than they are, and yet they have no one more powerful than these threats, no one to save them or defend them. Fear is the principal power that Satan wields in the world. Fear is Satan's great weapon. Hebrews 2 talks about how Satan enslaves the world, not under death, but under the fear of death. That's what Satan uses to enslave the world, the fear of death. God is the one who gives life and death. Satan can only frighten the world and make you think that dying is the worst thing. 
that can happen. It's, it's actually pathetic when you think about it, how little power Satan actually holds, especially after the resurrection of Jesus. All Satan has left is psychological operations, psyops, that's all. He just, he just has fear and, and terror and manipulation. And you can defang him and you can disarm him when you determine not to fear. Don't fear the thing Satan most wants you to fear. Jesus told us in Luke 12, he said, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after they have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who has the, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. There right there is constructive fear, fear of the Lord and sinful fear, fear of man in the very same command. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord puts our feet on the path to love and reverence and worship of the God of, the, of creation. Jesus exhorts us not to fear anybody or anything more than God. So focus, what are you afraid of? What do you fear? Name it. Think about it. Is God greater than that or smaller than that? Who would have you fear that? Who, who profits off of your fear other than Satan? Does God have more or less resources than the thing that you fear? Fear is sinful if in your mind, the thing you fear is bigger than God. That's sinful fear. Fear is also sinful when we fear the thing that the Lord forbids us to fear. What does the scripture say about what, what not to fear? There are several things we're told not to fear. Well, it says, uh, the Bible tells us not to fear people. In Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples not to fear their enemies for nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. God will expose our enemies. He will judge our enemies. They're not invincible. Don't fear them. They're just flesh and blood. You're flesh and blood. Why, why do you fear them? Psalm 27 says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me. In this, I will be confident. How many people are you afraid of? How many enemies do you have? When you count them up and they equal enough to be an army, even then, Psalm 27 says, you can be confident because Yahweh is the strength of your life. He knows the mind and he knows the plots of your enemies. He sees their plans and nothing they can do or say is going to ever catch him off guard. Psalm 56, in God, I've put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Proverbs 29, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh shall be safe. What, what is that snare that the fear of man brings? Well, the one you fear is the one you will please. If you fear man, you will always be tempted to please men, to cultivate the favor of men above all things, to love men's approval more than the approval of God. That's the snare. It flips your allegiances. It flips your loyalties. So don't fear men. That's what Jesus says. That's what the Bible says. Don't fear people. The Bible also tells us not to fear circumstances. Psalm 91 is so rich, and uh, if uh, I could do a whole series on this fear uh, subject because there's so much about it. But Psalm 91, um, I'm, read, I'm going to read and, and just hear the Word of God and how he addresses this issue of, 
of the, the, the circumstances and the environments that we find ourselves in and how God is, is our keeper and our fortress. Listen to Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of Yahweh, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, the things you can't see, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made Yahweh, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. I'm going to skip down to verse 14. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. This is Yahweh speaking to the worshiper. He has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. If you are in Christ, Christ is your environment. Christ is your fortress. Christ is your promised land. Christ is your Sabbath. So by night and day, in darkness and light, in sickness and in health, he is all around you. What in your world are you so afraid of that you believe it has penetrated the defenses of the Lord Jesus Christ? What has access to you in a way that God is incapable of delivering you? We fear situations where there's going to be conflict or when things are going to be complicated or when things are going to be awkward or difficult. Hard conversations and, and confrontations can put us in a deep state of anxiety. We lose sleep. We lose appetite when we're looking ahead to a difficult situation. It dominates our thoughts. And then often when we get there, the actual event is way less tense than we worked it out to be because everybody else is anxious as well, it turns out. Everybody else was worried about it as well. But we get through it. How much more so can we go through these things well when we've confessed our own sins, when we've prayed for wisdom, when we've asked for strength, and we go into these awkward, difficult situations as the courageous ones, as the bold ones, while everyone else around us is falling apart. Tough situations are significantly less awkward when you have this fixed, resolute sense that his truth is your shield and buckler, that he is your fortress, he is your environment, and no circumstance can destroy you or separate you from his love. The Bible tells us not to fear our circumstances, not to fear people. We're also forbidden from fearing bad news. With our overactive imaginations, our minds wander at night when we stare at the ceiling or when we're driving. And we, we play out these nightmare scenarios in our thoughts. We, have, we imagine the absolute worst things that could happen to our kids, to our family, to our, our careers, our country. And then when the phone rings, and when the email dings, or there's a hastily called meeting at work, or a news alert flashes on the, on the screen, panic overtakes us. Our heart skips a beat and we forget to breathe. 
But Psalm 112 says, the man who fears Yahweh, who delights greatly in his commandments, will never be shaken. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. He will not be afraid of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is established. He will not be afraid. The man whose heart is established is not a bundle of nerves, always expecting and assuming the worst. So those are things the Bible says you can't fear. You can't fear people. You can't fear circumstances. You can't fear bad news. If the thing that you fear is in any one of those categories, you have to repent and you have to put it away. And then lastly, one more sinful fear. Fear is sinful when it keeps us from obeying God. The book of Proverbs has all these darkly humorous descriptions of the sluggard. And one of my favorites is the lazy man who won't get up and go to work because there's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the streets. I can't go out. You expect me to go outside and work? I can't go outside. I could be killed by a lion. There's no lion. You're just lazy. Sinful fear prevents us from doing our duty. Sinful fear pre prevents us from meeting our responsibilities and doing what God requires us to do. And sinful fear this way is infectious. Once you, out of fear, stop doing what's required of you, other people see you not doing what's required of you because of the fear, and that justifies their fear as well. A few weeks back, we read about the brave men who spied out Canaan, Joshua, and Caleb. And then we find when we get back and report things to Moses that 10 of the spies were too afraid to do what God told them to do. Only, only two of the 12 spies says, yeah, we can, we can do it. We can take the land of Canaan. The 10 weak men riled up the whole congregation of Israel to oppose the brave men so much that the whole congregation of Israel wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for their bravery. Several generations later, the whole army of Israel is nervous. They're terrified at the bombastic threats of Goliath. David arrives as a young man and says, hey, we can take him. What's up? What's going on? And David is ridiculed. The weak and the fearful aren't satisfied not doing what they're called to do. They have to mock the brave and they have to justify their, their, their lack of obedience by getting you to fear what they fear. Now, eventually Joshua and David carry the day, but not before putting up with all kinds of resistance from weak and fearful people. Why does it always seem to be this way? Why does it seem that the fearful always hold the cards? Why do they have all the influence? Why do we give in to and cater to the fears of the weak? And by the weak, I mean those who go from one crisis to the next. I'm not talking about the weak in the faith. I'm not talking about new converts. I'm not using the word weak the way Paul does in 1 Corinthians. I'm talking about the perpetual victims of oppression who are always, always uh, going from one crisis to the next. Those who want to be governed by their feelings rather than by God's principles. Often it seems that the people who run everything and set the agendas are in this category. And why, why don't families and schools and churches and organizations and communities organize around the strong and the, and the faithful, and the productive, and the bold? Why do we tend to set policies and establish procedures uh, that, that, that encourage fearfulness instead of risk-taking, innovation? Why don't we incentivize people to take responsibility for themselves and live boldly? Why does everything have to be shaped in such a way that the brave have to pretend like they're fearful for the sake of the fearful? And why aren't the fearful ever called to be courageous? When we make decisions and plan, we tend to think not about what makes us stronger. What, what does bold faithfulness look like? 
What charges at the gates of hell with both barrels blazing? But we define our organizations and families around the fear of man in the hopes that we'll do what makes us respectable, what, what keeps us out of trouble, what keeps us free from criticism, what gets the kind of glory that the world recognizes as glory. I mean, just do the thing that doesn't upset anybody. That's, that's the thing. Well, by doing this, we're feeding fear. We're feeding anxiety. We're nurturing fears, not conquering them. Faithfulness requires calculated risks. I'm going to take that mountain, Caleb says. I'm going to take that giant, David says. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, even though everybody there wants to kill me, Jesus says. And later, Paul says the very same thing. Faithfulness requires courage. Faithfulness requires sticking your neck out, trying something and seeing if it works. Nervousness is not a virtue. Anxiety is not a spiritual gift, but bravery is. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Not fear, but power. Not fear, but love. Not fear, but self-control. <laughs> not fear, but power. When we're making it our aim to please Christ in all things, we have his power, his confidence, his strength propelling us. Not fear, but love. John says, perfect love casts out fear. Fear is selfish. Fear looks to its own preservation. Fear is, is scared of the consequences of bravery. Love is so busy pouring itself out that others don't have time to worry. Not fear, but self-control. Courage compels us to stop living on our feelings and live on God's precepts. You want to drive out fear? Get up and do the thing that you're avoiding out of fear, the thing that God requires you to do. That drives out fear. That demonstrates that you fear God more than anything or anyone. And this is how we fight fear with fear. Fear the Lord. Worship him with holy reverence and awe. See the distance between his holiness and your sinfulness and, and contemplate the distance that his mercy reaches and how out of his grace you, have de, you, you, you haven't received the judgment that you deserve, but you have received mercy. Understand that he's not to be trifled with. Understand that you don't take him lightly. You don't carry his name in vain. Recognize that he accepts nothing less than your complete obedience and devotion. In all these ways, this is what the fear of the Lord means, to fear him in these ways. And that fear drives out all other fears. If you fear God this way, you will fear nothing else. So when you're tempted to fear, try this. Name the thing that you're afraid of. What is it? What is it? Name it. Name it. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid that this will happen. I'm afraid that this person will do this thing. I'm afraid of this consequence. Name it and then classify it. Is this thing bigger than God? It, can God prevent this thing from reaching me or, 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 or injuring me if he desires? And then remember who God is. Rehearse all of God's mighty acts, all of his promises Confess that you're afraid. Ask for his strength and his power and his love and self-control. Father, bring my fears under control. Discipline my mind and my heart. And finally, after you've done all that, ask, okay, what does God want me to do about this? Sometimes the, uh, sometimes the answer is nothing. Sometimes the answer is there's nothing you can do about it. Often there is something you ought to be doing. What is the thing God wants me to do about this fear? Okay, go do it. What does faithfulness look like? What is the opposite of fear in this situation? That's what you do. You do the thing that's opposite of fear. That's the thing I do. 
I'm asking myself more and more as <laughs> I'm running through this drill of naming a fear and saying, is this bigger than God or not? What does God want me to do about this? Uh, confessing my fears and repenting of my sin and asking God for strength and then ask, what do I do? What does the opposite of fear look like? I keep thinking if we're going to snap out of this great global panic where everybody's lost their mind simultaneously, you know, I keep, I keep thinking we're going to wake up one morning and this fog of terror is just going to pass and sanity is going to return. But that's not happening. Instead, I see a world retreating further and further and further from liberty and from boldness. And we're retreating to the idol of human engineered safety, godless safety, which is no safety at all. N nothing can save us. Nothing that we have at our hands, at our fingertips can save us. That's not safety. So I see that. I see the flight to the idol of safety and I want to run as hard and as fast in the opposite direction. What are the fearful doing? Okay, that's the opposite of what I'm doing. What are the, what are the terrorized doing? Okay, I want to do everything but that, to boldly oppose the culture of fear. Who's going to help us? <laughs> Who's going to bring us out of this terrible world that we've created so quickly? I'm convinced that only the church can lead our culture out of this nightmare. What other institution, what other organization, what other government is going to do it? On earth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. The church is the presence of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ, uh, Paul says in Ephesians. The church is the power of Christ on earth. And only the church can effectively and truly lead us out because only the church can be truly fearless and only the church can be truly brave. Only the church knows the devil's playbook. We, we know what he's doing. We know the catechism of fear. We can see it for what it is. Only the church can be courageous in the strength of the triune God. Only the church can expose the lie and lead us out of darkness into light, out of bondage into liberty. So live boldly. Fear only God. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not let your heart be troubled. Speak truth to your fears. Say to the thing that you fear, you are smaller than my God. You are weaker than my God. I will not give to you the focus and attention and consuming devotion that only God deserves. So be gone, fear. Go back to the devil that sent you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that these would not just be words. This would not just go in one ear and out the other, but that we would confront our fears boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would set them to flight and that you would empower us to live bold and faithful lives in an age of anxiety, in, a, in an age of absolute fear and insanity. So Father, strengthen us in all these ways, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.